has a commercial ever made you cry? The moment during the uh, Super Bowl in 2020 where tears were brought to my eyes and I had to do one of those, I, I'm not crying, you're, you're crying. It was an ad by Google. And it opened up with that famous search bar that all of us have seen. And into the search bar was typed, How to not forget. And then you just hear the voice of an older man talking to Google's hands-free assistant. Hey Google, show me pictures of Loretta. The slideshow of photographs from days gone past begins to play. And as each picture comes upon the screen, you hear the old man ask Google to help him to remember. Google, remember that Loretta hated my mustache. Remember that she loved Alaska and scallops. Remember she always snorted when she laughed. It becomes clear as the ad continues that the man has outlived his beloved wife and is losing his memory. And then the text on the screen changes, and you see the, the Google Assistant responding, and it says, here are the things you've asked me to remember about Loretta. And there's a long list. She loved show tunes. Her favorite flowers were tulips. And then it culminates with, Loretta always said, don't miss me too much and get out of the dang house. And as you read that line, you can hear the door creaking open. And the man's voice comes and he says, Google, remember, I'm the luckiest man in the world. Remembering reminds us of who has loved us and of who we are. It often provokes strong emotions because it connects us to the past and informs how we live in the present. And it is remembering that is at the very center of our small text this morning. Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 11 through 13. It's the only imperative in the first half of the book of Ephesians. Remember. This command is enjoined specifically upon Gentiles in the audience. But as we'll find out this morning, it also subtly applies to the Jews in the congregation. Before we dive down into our text, I think it's important that we keep the whole of the book of Ephesians in our mind. Kind of like if we were putting a puzzle together, you want to keep that box top in front of you so you know where these pieces kind of go and how they're arranged. And just really broadly speaking... The book of Ephesians can be divided into two parts. The first part tells us about what God has done, what Jesus has done for us. The way Paul says it in chapter 2 is that He's made us alive. And the second half of the book of Ephesians tells us what we are to do in response to that. And so the way I've tried to remember it myself is the first half is about our identity, and the second half is about the actions that we take as a result of our new identity in Christ. And what we have here in chapter 2 is Paul is continuing to expound 
on what exactly it is that God has done for His loved ones. For those that He has predestined to adoption as sons and made alive from death. He's not left that major theme in verses 8 and 9. Remember, He says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. He's calling the Ephesians to remember grace. The Gentiles specifically, to remember how far off from God they were before He saved them. Really, uh, this chapter, chapter 2, verses 1-10 through 10 are kind of a look at our individual conversion. We're dead in sins. The Gospel comes and the Spirit of God changes our hearts. We're made alive to God. Raised up with Christ. Seated with Him in the heavenlies. And then verses 11-22 through 22 inform us about the corporate nature of our salvation. Not only have we been made alive to God and reconciled to God, we've been reconciled one to another across ethnic and racial boundaries, across age and cultural background. This is demonstrated to us in the reconciliation that occurs between Jew and Gentile. And so we get to see in chapter 2 both the vertical dimension of our salvation and the horizontal dimension. And one of the incredible things in verses 11 through 22 is that Paul is pointing out that those who were strangers to God's promises have been made heirs to those promises. Those who had no claim on God as their God have been brought into the family of God. Gentiles have been turned into Jews. Indeed, the main point is that Jews and Gentiles are made one in Christ. One new man, one people, one household, one building. And so we see one of those major themes of the whole book. Unity in Christ. Those who are united to Jesus are therefore united to one another. Paul gets us here through pretty simple argumentation. So you can see in verse 11, he's going to say, remember at one time, and he's going to say, this is your past condition. And he's going to say in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, and he's going to explain how Jesus has addressed the previous condition, and then in verse 19 you say, so then you are no longer strangers, and he's going to go on to talk about the implications of what Christ has done for Jew and Gentile alike. And so to give us kind of the overview of the whole section, I'm going to read the passage this morning, give you the main idea, and then we'll, we'll settle down into our text. So, so listen to Ephesians Chapter 2, starting with verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, 
and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached, pre- preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so you can see how from the beginning of verse 11 to the end of verse 22, a great reversal has taken place. Those who were once strangers are now citizens. Those who did not belong to the people of God have been made part of the people of God, and it's happened through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I've tried to summarize it this way. Uh, It's not very short, but but the main idea is this. Strangers to God's promises are made citizens of God's kingdom, siblings in God's household, and stones in God's temple. All. All in Christ. The uh, more portable and simple way to say it is that Jesus makes strangers citizens. Jesus makes strangers citizens. And I want to exhort you this morning to remember. Remember grace. And to remember that salvation comes only through Christ Jesus. And that salvation is not based on circumcision. Let's pray and we'll begin our time together this morning. Holy Father, we ask that you would give us a sense of awe as we open your word this morning to hear what you would have to say to us, your people. We come with eager expectation and hope that you might teach us that Your Spirit might fill this place, that You would move us to worship, that You would help us to trust You more, to see just how great Your faithfulness is. Lord, remind us of Your great glory and grace this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we read in verse 11 once more, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope 
and without God in the world. Paul opens up by saying, you Gentiles! So he's signaling out, this, to this point in the letter, he's been talking to everybody as a group, the fellowship of the saints, Jew and Gentile alike. And so now he's calling out this particular ethnic class, saying this application is for, for you specifically. So listen up. And what he means by Gentile, the, the word in Greek is ethne, you can kind of hear it. Ethne, it's from, we get ethnicity from this word, and it just means nations. Simply, it's anybody that's not Jewish. A Gentile is simply a non-Jew. And so he's saying, you nations, you non-Jews, you Gentiles need to remember where you were when Christ found you. You need to remember just how lost and how blind and how hopeless your situation was. And he does this not to, to be morbid or to put in, uh, like a burden on their shoulders. Think about your sins all the time. right? He's not trying to, to weigh down the Gentiles in the congregation. He's more giving them a before and after picture. You ever done this? If you have a room in your house, uh, recently our, our kitchen got redone, and you take pictures beforehand, you say, all right, look at it, look what it looked like before, and then you get it, get it redone, and you say, this is what it looks like now. And when you look at the two side by side, I can't believe that's the same room. Oh, wow, it's amazing. Look at the, the transformation. This is what Paul is calling them to remember. The idea is that when they remember what they were before, and they think about who they are now in Christ, it will result in their awe at the work of God. It will move them to worship. It will magnify God's grace and intensify their love and gratitude. And so he's saying, remember where you came from with the goal of them having a John Newton-like experience. Now, y'all know John Newton? He was a former slave trader. And when he was converted to Christ, he wrote those famous words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Paul wants us to think about our conversion to Christ in the same way. What, what a wretch I was, how amazing God's grace to me is. He wants us to avoid presuming upon the grace of God. And so he outlines for the Gentiles five horrors that they should remember when considering their past. There are five horrors. The first one is perhaps the most terrible. We see it there in verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. To be separated from Christ is to be cut off from God and all of His blessings. And to be cut off from Christ is to be without hope. There's, if you are separated from Christ, you are at war with God still. If you are separated from Christ, there's nothing that you can do to reconcile yourself to God. 
There was nothing that any of us could do to make ourselves right with the God that we were made for. No, no. We needed the Gospel. We need the Gospel. Friends, it is the Gospel that makes dead people come to life. Faith comes from hearing the Word of God and the Spirit regenerating the heart of God's people. It is the Gospel that gives life. The wonderful news that Jesus Christ was crucified for the sins of all who will turn from their sins and believe in Him saves. It's wonderful news that Jesus didn't stay dead, but defeated death in His resurrection. And that whoever trusts in Him will share in a resurrection like His. It's wonderful news that Jesus is alive right now, in heaven, ruling and reigning. And that He has promised to return and make all things new. This is the good news of the Gospel. This is what we believe as Christians. We believe that Jesus was God in the flesh. That He came and lived the life we should have lived. Died the death we should have died. Raised from the dead. And is promised to return to end all evil. This is good news. And friends, it is only by faith in Jesus that anyone can be reconciled to God. And so we preach the Gospel. This is why, you know, in the first line of why we exist as a church in our Constitution, we say that this church exists to worship and witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. We worship Him and we witness to His Lordship to our friends and our neighbors and people we meet. Because we know that we have family and friends and neighbors that are separated from Christ. That are living in verse 1-3 through of chapter 2. That are dead, following the course of this world, disciples of Satan, doomed for an eternity that they have earned, just like we had earned before God's grace intruded, an eternity they had earned under God's wrath. Brothers and sisters, share the Gospel. For without it, without Christ, no one will see God. No one comes to the Lord Jesus apart from Christ. If you're here and you're a non-Christian, there is life in Jesus. You can know God if you will simply stop following your heart and doing everything your way and start obeying the voice of God. Start obeying His Word in Scripture. Ultimately, that means putting your faith, your life in the hands of Jesus. Trusting in Jesus' perfect life, in Jesus' substitutionary death, in Jesus' resurrection, rather than your own good works. Ultimately, faith is about trusting in Jesus instead of yourself. Come to Him. His yoke is easy 
and his burden is light. The second thing we see, second horror, is that prior to conversion, we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. This meant we had no community with the people of God. No access to God. Outsiders. No way for the Gentiles to engage with God. They were foreigners. They had no sacrificial system, no true temple. No way to come before the Lord. Thirdly, third horror, strangers to the covenants of promise. It's, it's noteworthy here that while a multitude of divine promises find expression in the various covenants, what really matters is the one great promise underneath of them all. The promise of a Messiah. It's the promise of a Messiah that is underneath all the covenants. And the Gentiles had no idea about the news that Messiah is coming. Right? God did plan to bless the nations through Israel, and that's what He's done. That's why all of us Gentiles are here. But at one time, Gentiles were not aware of this. They had no revelation from God, no word from God, no teaching from God. Can, can you imagine being without your Bible? That's what this would have been like. No word from God. No, no way to, to know God. Because He hadn't revealed Himself to them. And it's in His Word that we find His promises. It's in His Word that God has spoken to His people. Meditating on this reality, uh, one pastor I listened to this week shared a, a story of when he was preaching throughout Europe. And, and when you're in Europe, a lot of the pulpits in the churches have this odd kind of iron rod that comes up from the pulpit. And at the end of the rod, there's a, like a circular kind of platform. And he was answering the question, well, what is this, this rod for? This is what he said. Those were gifts of the congregation to the preacher. And they were hourglass holders. The congregation would give the preacher one or two turns of the hourglass for his sermon. When he said this, one person sitting there audibly gasped and asked, What time did that leave for worship? So the pastor explained. The people that were sitting there, many of them remembered seeing men and women killed for reading the Bible in English or translating it into English. The smell of burnt flesh was still alive in their nostrils. The people in those congregations understood what a precious treasure it was to have the Bible. They understood what it cost for them to have the Bible in their language. What a privilege it was to know that God had spoken to them. They knew that the center of worship is hearing God's Word and responding to it. 
Oh, friends, we, we take knowing God's promises through His Word for granted. We have one of the most magnificent treasures anyone could ever imagine. The one who called stars and oceans and planets and gnats and you and me into existence has spoken to us in His Word and our Bibles gather dust. Friends, we ought to recognize what a gift it is to have God's Word. To hear it and respond to it. Treat the fourth and fifth horrors together. You see the fourth one there at the end of verse 12. Having no hope and without God in the world. And this doesn't mean they were without gods, right? They had idols. Dan uh, so helpfully read to us from Isaiah 44. That picture of someone making an idol out of the same material and then cooking food and then bowing down and worshiping to it shows just how ridiculous it is to trust in idols. It's hopeless to trust in idols. And yet, this is what anyone who is separated from Christ and separated from God does. We were created to worship. And all people worship something. The question is not whether we worship. The question is who do we worship? Is our worship rightly directed? And what Paul is saying here, remember your condition... You were without hope. You were trusting in idols. Powerless, lifeless idols. You were without hope and without God in the world. Brothers and sisters, no one can have salvation apart from Jesus. No one. Not the person on the island in the Amazon. I don't know if that works with this island in the Amazon, but you get the idea. Not the Hindu. Not the really good person. Not the Muslim. Not the atheist. Not the positive thinker. Not the humanitarian. No one has peace with God apart from Christ. Sometimes in our secular culture, a wonderful illustration of an elephant is brought out to, to show all religions really worship the same God and they just have part of the truth. Right? You've heard it. The one, you've got a bunch of blind people and there's an elephant there and they, you know, one of them hugs the leg of the elephant and says, God is like a tree. Then another one grabs the tail and says, God is like a snake. Another one feels at the side of the elephant and says, no, God is like a wall. And really, they all have a piece of the truth and they're all connected to God. That's a lie. Forget the fact that the illustration is self-defeating because the narrator has omniscience and knows that it's an elephant. But the reality of our situation is not that we are groping in the dark trying to find out what God is. The reality of our situation is that we are dead worshiping false gods. And if we want to co-opt the illustration and make it a Christian one, we would say... Uh, if, if, if God is the elephant and we are all, all dead and blind groping around, the elephant speaks and says, I'm an elephant. God has revealed Himself to us in His Word. He has told us how He can be appropriately related to and worshipped. And there is only one way. Through the blood of Christ. 
There is salvation in no one else, Peter says in Acts 4.12, for there is no other name under heaven by which we may be saved except for the name of Jesus. Friends, this is why we must share the Gospel. The mission of our church is to worship God to make disciples of all nations. And the means by which God has determined that we are to make disciples of all nations is through preaching Christ crucified. Crucified for sins and raised for our justification. How can people believe if they have not heard? And how will they hear if we do not take the message to them? So wherever God has planted us to live, and as some of you are moving, wherever God is taking us, Our job in that place is to worship and witness to the Lord Jesus Christ so that those who are His might hear His voice and be saved. We're going to remember our condition. We are without God in the world. Hopeless. Christless. And then comes verse 13, which kind of mirrors verse 4. Those wonderful Pauline conjunctions. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Only Jesus brings light out of darkness. Only Jesus brings beauty out of ashes. Only Jesus brings life out of the dead. Only Jesus makes people right with God. He takes those who are far off from God, doing their own thing, sinning and in rebellion against God, and He brings them near to God's heart. Only Jesus can do that. It's beautiful. The reversal that we see from verse 12 to the rest of this chapter, is it not? Those who are separated from Christ have been united to Christ by faith. Those who are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel have been made fellow citizens with the saints. Those who are strangers of the covenants of promise enjoy all the promises of God in Christ. Those who were once separated from the people of God They were outsiders. They had no way to worship God have been made insiders. They've been made members in God's own household. Not only that, they could never have gone into the temple. And yet now we read at the end of the chapter, they have been made God's temple. God lives in them. Only Jesus can turn verse 12 into verse 21. How great is our salvation. How great is God's grace. Friends, we must remember salvation comes only from Christ Jesus our Lord. We must remember grace. And we ought to remember that salvation is not based on any outward circumstance. On anything we could do. Indeed, salvation is not based on circumcision. Look with me at verse 11. Therefore, 
And because we're good readers, we're going to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And Paul wants them to remember everything that's gone before. Right? He's saying, because you have been blessed by God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ, the one who chose us in him before the foundation of the world, because he's predestined us to adoption as sons, according to his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, because he has redeemed us through his blood, because he has sealed us with his Holy Spirit, because he has taken us who were dead and made us alive with Christ, raised us up with him, seated us with him in heavenly places, because he's done all this by his grace. Remember where you were. Remember the before picture. So that when you look at the after picture, you're not tempted to boast in yourself. To look around to be prideful and say, I did this. No, it's not a result of works, so no one may boast. So he's saying, in light of all of that, remember. And we get that, we just walked through that, right? But why does Paul randomly, I mean, it's not random, it's deliberate, but it seems random, bring up circumcision, right? He could have just said, Remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh were separated from Christ. Now on down the line. But he doesn't. There's this interjection. At one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Why is Paul bringing this up? First, distinction. Distinction. Israel was set off from her neighbors primarily through the sign of circumcision. I'm not going to go into to details on what circumcision is. Uh, Mike and David and Dan will tell you all about it after service if you want to know. But fundamentally, circumcision was symbolic of having sin cut away and of God's people being set apart for him. It harkened back to the promise made to Abraham that his descendants would be a blessed kingdom. Sort of like an Israelite social security card that you know the people of God are here through this sign of circumcision. You see, unfortunately what had happened was this sign became for the Jews a source of improper pride in themselves and a source of scorn towards Gentiles. Which brings us to the second reason for the mention of circumcision. Disdain. Disdain. Paul wants us to realize that this name-calling that went on between Jew and Gentile was symptomatic of a much bigger problem. The antipathy that existed between Jew and Gentile cannot be understated. And we can understand how it would have developed. I mean, we worked through Leviticus. And you remember, so many of those rules and regulations were aimed at making sure the whole world knew that the Jews were God's holy people and that everybody else was not. From circumcision, to their clothing, to the food they ate, all of it was aimed at saying, this is God's holy people. God's holy people are set apart from the world, not like the rest of the world. And what happened, as you can see, is disdain was developed between the two. And so, the name calling. And you say, well, Calling someone the uncircumcision doesn't really sound that bad, right? Now, we need to remember, when they're calling them the uncircumcision, it's not a commentary on whether or not a medical procedure had been performed. It's more similar to like a racial slur. In fact, uh, the, the word uncircumcision, if we translate it literally, just means foreskin, okay? 
And so let me, try to, let me try to help you get a sense of this. You guys remember the story of David and Goliath? Right? Context that you know, Israel's cowering in their tents, and here's this huge Philistine, Goliath. He's coming out and he's taunting the people of God, and then little shepherd boy David shows up, uh, no clout, he's really a nobody, and, and he, he shows up and he's mad at the Israelites because they're hiding away from this Gentile. They're scared of this person that doesn't have the promises of God, that doesn't have the Holy One of Israel at his back. And do you know what David says? How can you possibly be afraid of this oversized foreskin, this uncircumcised Philistine? And hear what he's saying. He's insulting him, and he's saying, he is sinful and dirty and separated from God. How could you be afraid of him? When you think about the literal meaning of circumcision and uncircumcision, you know, we, we can sense the insult a little more, sense the weight of what's being going on here. There's name-calling. There's vehemence. Disdain between Jew and Gentile. And why does Paul bring up this name-calling? To disparage circumcision. He, he says it this way. He says, by what is called a circumcision, we could translate it by what is the so-called circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. See that phrase, made in the flesh by hands? This phrase is used in the Old Testament of making idols. And in all of its occurrences in the New Testament, it's used in regard to constructing a temple. It always refers to what a person does with his or her hands, and that is in contrast to the work of God. And so Paul here, in a really neat way, is accusing the Jews of doing what the Gentiles used to do prior to Christ. He's saying, you have put your confidence, when you act this way, in circumcision rather than in Christ. Just as the Gentiles put their faith in the idols they've made by hands rather than in Christ. And the subtext is, if you've done that, you don't know Jesus. Is it Your circumcision does not save you. You, you. The fact that you were born an Israelite does not make you right with God. And you ought not boast in it because you had nothing to do with it anyway. The appearances lie. Things are not always what they seem. So we have the fun dynamic in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never inherit the kingdom of God. And at that point, everybody's like, Pharisees are good guys. These are the religious scholars of the day. They're like, I cannot be more righteous than a scribe or a Pharisee. And we see in Matthew 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You are as whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you've been circumcised. You've kept the law. But on the inside, you are full of death. Paul's saying, you might think that you know God because of your pedigree or your genealogy, but you are not saved by your genealogy. You are not saved by your ethnicity or your skin color or anything else. You are only saved by Christ. So do not boast in your circumcision. 
looks can be deceiving. And friends, let us take a lesson here. Let us think, are we guilty in any way of trusting in our own works rather than Christ? Are we prone to to make even the most fundamental of Christian activities idols? Is there any part of us that is more concerned with appearance than knowing God? Paul says, you might look like you have everything together on the outside, but you are not saved from that which is outward. You are saved from what God does inwardly. This makes this really clear in Romans chapter 2, verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. What? But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not the letter. You hear what he's saying. Your sign that you are in the covenant people of God is not circumcision. The sign that you are in the covenant people of God is that your heart has been changed by God. One who is a Jew is not a Jew just because of their Jewish pedigree. One becomes a Jew by the Spirit. And so if we have that follow-up question, well, who then is a Jew? Well, Paul tells us in Galatians 3, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Who are the children of Abraham? Who are the true Jews? Those who have faith. Those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. The people of God are those who trust in the Lord Jesus. Jew and Gentile alike made one new man in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's no ground for boasting for the Jew. There's no ground of boasting for the Gentile. Salvation is all of grace, and God gets all the glory. And so we are to remember. We're to remember grace and give glory to God. We're to remember because God's people are so quick to forget. In Deuteronomy, Moses is laying down one of his final sermons, and he says, remember God, don't forget Him. In chapter 32, he composes a song that he's going to teach to the people so that when they forget God, they'll still remember the song and know that Moses told them not to forget God. In Joshua 3.7, we read, not that far after Moses, right? Moses, Joshua, then we're into Judges. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, and worship the Baals and the Asherahs. So we we have to ask the question, what keeps us from remembering grace? What keeps us from remembering God? I think I'm just going to point out two things. We presume upon the grace of God. We think to ourselves, 
of course God forgives me. I'm really cute. Right? But of course God forgives me. It's His business to forgive. Friends, God doesn't owe anyone forgiveness. It is mercy and grace. The second trap I think we fall into is that we take God's grace for granted. We just slowly fall asleep and become bored. Like, don't realize how incredible it is that we've been made alive to God. Perhaps you've seen this take place in your relationship. Take your spouse for granted. Your children for granted. On Mother's Day, maybe some of you have taken your mothers for granted. Friends, do not take the grace of God for granted. Some things that we can do to help us remember. Remember your baptism. That moment at which your confession of faith had skin put on it and you were buried with Christ in the waters of baptism and raised into the newness of life. Where you were living out, acting out what God had done in you. God had brought you from death to life. And so remember your baptism and remember the grace of God. Second thing, that when we come together week after week, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And part of what we are doing when we celebrate the Lord's Supper is we are tangibly reminding ourselves of what God has done. It's truth that we can touch. We take Christ's body broken for us into ourselves. We drink the blood that was shed to us into our hearts. We remember what God has done. Third thing is gathering together as God's people. These are simple things, but they are all wonderful reminders. Week after week, year after year. They all remind us of grace, of God's goodness. Friends, let us never forget that our salvation came at the expense of Jesus, bleeding and suffocating as he was suspended on a cross by nails driven through his hands and his feet. Let us never forget that he died under the righteous wrath of God, wrath that was due not to Him, but to you and me, to all who would call Him Lord. Brothers and sisters, remember grace, because remembering elicits gratitude. It intensifies love. It magnifies grace. It moves us to worship God as we ought. Remember grace. Remember Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You have made us alive. We were made to love You and to know You and to worship You. We were made to do it together with one another. We pray that You would help us not to look to any idols that we've erected in our lives for assurance or security or satisfaction but that you would keep our eyes on Christ Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We give him all the glory and all the praise, and we pray in his name.
wonderful name. Amen.